Thank you, Brian. Morning, everybody. Maybe you have never seen it before, but today we're going to get a good understanding about how the end of the Bible is directly connected to the very beginning. So are you ready for a little bit of that? <clears throat> Genesis, we're going to start in chapter 2. Here's how it begins. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life. Remember that, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing it to four branches. Verse 15, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die, it says. Verse 19, the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. Okay, if this was like the opening scene of a movie, and we're panning across the scenery, there's all these images of what's going on there. So we have a garden, we have a river, we have a man, and he's not alone. There's a bunch of animals there, a woman's going to be created in just a moment. There's trees, there is a tree of life, there's a tree of life. Then it says that God said to the man, you name these animals, you do it. Now notice that, that phrase that it said there, it said, the man chose a name for each one. Now I assume that God is perfectly capable of naming all these animals. He just created all of them. That's the hard part. So he can, he's fully able to do this, but yet he turns to the man and says, I want, I want you to do this. He takes the task and he hands it to the man. God says, I'll just bring them to you. I'll bring them to you two by two. Wait, I'll do that later. I'll just bring them one by one right now. So he says, just name them whatever you want. Name them whatever you want. So the first animal comes in and looks at him. Adam says, okay, hippopotamus. <laughs> There's this weird moment in the God looks at the angels, and the angels are like, did you see that coming? Because I did not see that coming, okay? So he brings in the next one, brings another animal in. Okay, duck-billed platypus, okay? Three hours of this, and the man is just tapped. He's out of creative juices. So the next animal comes in, he's like, I don't know, dog? Maybe dog? Okay, that's fine. But the point is, everything up until this point has been a about a God who was infinitely creative, He's infinitely able to come up with planets and stars and rocks and trees and animals just endlessly. He is clearly not short on ideas. Would you agree? He is not short on ideas. Not like God is saying, I just work six days straight. I need a nap. God is not saying that. He is infinitely able. But there is this sense that God wants to partner with man with what he has created to care for this place that he has created and given to the man. Wants him to cultivate it, care for it, make it the kind of place that God intends for it to be. So God is looking for partners. God is still looking for partners. So this is one of the pictures that we're, we're giving there in Genesis. Meaningful labor. It's not like Adam just sits around bored because there's work in the Garden of Eden, but it's meaningful labor that brings him joy. 
I mean, it's gardening, but apparently some people are into that. <laughs> but God enjoys giving his people good work to do, healthy work to do. Now, we're going to read the last part of that chapter, starting in verse number 20. We'll just kind of pick up where we left off. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. Now, bones in the ancient world, in the ancient mind, are a symbol of strength. Flesh was a symbol of weakness. So this idea of bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, carries this idea of interdependence, like where I'm strong, she's weak, but yet where I'm weak, she's strong. It's like we fit together perfectly. So again, if this is a movie, some of the dominant scenes that we would be looking at would be rivers, mankind in meaningful labor, harmony between God and people, harmony between people and people. And in the middle of all this is a tree of life. It's very, like over and over, the writer wants us to see that in the middle of all this is a tree of life. Now, why is the tree there so prominently? I mean, several times he wants us to see this. Why is it there? Okay. We're going to understand this a little bit better. Now, if we were to take a look at the end of the story, the book of Revelation, again, the Bible being a movie, what would the opening scene be? It would be Genesis, right? Yes, very good. If it's, what would the closing scene be? It would be Revelation. Gold star for everybody, okay? One of the dominant lines at the end of the story is this line, Behold, I am making all things new. So the end is somehow sort of a beginning, like the future is somehow ancient. Nevertheless, these are some of the pictures we get. Okay, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 22, end of the story. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the, the throne of God and of the Lamb. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bear, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. Now the idea of reigning here that he's talking about is this idea of actively participating with God. It's like the, the idea of Jesus conquering death and then Jesus and his followers partnering with him in caring for, cultivating, managing this creation that God now at this point in time has recreated, not just created, but recreated. So the final scene now involves a river, people engaged in meaningful labor, people in harmony with each other and with God, and in the middle of it, a tree of life. So the Bible opens and closes with an almost identical scene. Genesis is the picture of origins, it's the beginning of things. Revelation is the picture of an end of an era, and we are somehow in between, living between the trees. That's where we are. Now I want us to talk about time for just a moment about time. The Bible continually portrays God as a being who has kind of existed forever in the past, like infinitely left. And the Bible portrays a God who will live infinitely in the future, like infinitely to the right. God who always has been, always will be. A God who stands out.
outside of time. No beginning, no end, no boundaries, no borders, no edges. A God who just simply is. He just is. So Moses encounters God and says to God, tell me your name. God says, I am. And Moses is like, that's not helpful. What am I supposed to do with that? What does that mean? And God is in essence saying, I just am. I always have been and I always will be. So a God who goes forever in this direction and forever in that direction creates human beings who say things like, I was in the checkout line and I waited forever. <laughs> so this brief moment between the trees is like a blip on the radar screen of life. Radar screen of life. A great author by the name of Gene Edwards, he put it this way. He said, then God created a small space and he called it eternity. That's how big God is. God always has been, always will be. And for a brief snap in history, a realm exists between the trees. This is not how it always was. It's not how it always will be. This realm is temporary. Now, if you're wearing a watch, just hold it up. Okay? Your watch might run on a 24-hour cycle, which we will call a day. We get that 24-hour cycle from the sun rising and setting, coming to the point of rising again, which it does with amazing efficiency. Why? Why is it so efficient? Because it's not run by the government. That was free, okay? So our understanding of a 24-hour day is directly linked with the earth and with the sun. Now, our concept of a month is tied to the lunar cycle, which is the earth's relationship with the moon and all of creation's monthly fear of women. Moving on. Our idea of a year, of a year is this revolution of the earth all the way around the sun. When it goes around once, we call that a year. So all of our notions of time are related to the movement of celestial bodies, which Genesis says, in the beginning, God made. That's an interesting little point that I've, I've made before, I brought this up before. But the writer of Genesis wants us to be really sure, wants, wants all the readers of Genesis to be able to distinguish between God and God's creation. Very, very different. So in the book of Genesis, in uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 3, here's the account here. It says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. There was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So this very first day, there's evening, and there is morning. Now here's a question. On what day was the sun created? Verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. Goes on a little bit later to say, and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. When was the sun created? Fourth day. So there's evening and morning on the first day. The sun is not even created till the fourth day. What is up with that? Here's the deal. The writer is not confused, nor is he scientifically impaired. He wants to make it very, very clear that the sun and the moon are part of creation. They are not divine. They're not gods. They're not eternal. The text never even says the sun or the moon. It says the greater light and the lesser light. It's a good reason for that. Sun and moon were the names of deities in the ancient Near East. And the writer wants everybody who reads this book of Genesis to be really, really clear that the sun and the moon are not divine. They are creations. 
Their functions are assigned to them by an all-powerful creator who has the capacity to make all kinds of light without any help from them at all. There was light before the sun and moon. There will be light after them. Revelation actually says at the end, there will be no more need for sun or moon because God himself will be their light. God himself will be their light. So all the ways in which we measure time are for this momentary blip in history. Time, watches, clocks are only necessary for this little slice of time right now. Just pause and think for a moment about the things that you love most. Stuff you really, really enjoy. Maybe you have some hobby that you do with friends. Maybe you like to go to the woods or to the beach or to the mountains or you like to stare at sunrises and you never get tired of them. Maybe you like to work with your hands. Maybe there are certain projects that you like, certain tasks that you love. When you're doing those things, when you're doing those things that make you feel alive, that make you feel connected to God, well, time moves fast, doesn't it? And you find yourself going, have we really been at this for four hours? I can't believe that. Man, I lost track of time. That's what we say. I've lost track of time. Now, I guarantee on the flip side of that, the things that bore you most are the things that you look at your watch and go, what is happening? <laughs> Can't you move faster than this? I don't get it. I don't get it. So why is it that the things that we don't like, everything sort of seems to slow down, but then the stuff that we love seems to get revved up. The stuff that we're fully present for goes by so quickly. Maybe, just maybe, maybe, maybe. Those moments where we're most passionate, when we're the most caught up, are God's way of giving us glimpses of what forever will be like with him and with each other. Maybe they're little snapshots of forever. Only when we're in forever, it won't be forever, it'll just be now. But when I think about that, my head explodes, so I can't <laughs> spend much time there. Okay. If you were the devil, interesting thought, but just go with me, okay? If you were the devil, you're opposed to people experiencing God, you don't want to see people connect with God. You don't want them to have meaningful life here and now between the trees. Well, what would you do? Seems like if you could get people really, really busy, really busy, get people out of the moment, if you get them so busy that wherever they were, they had a long list in their mind of other things that they could or should be doing, either things that they hadn't done well and they're stressing about, or maybe they're just overwhelming amount of things on their to-do list or whatever. But wherever they are, if you get them thinking about a bunch of different things and moving really fast all the time, that might work, wouldn't it? That might work. And then you could invent some sort of device that you could hold in your hand <laughs> that would make you constantly aware of all the other things that you could and should be doing. So if you get people focused on doing a million things, then maybe they miss the one thing, the most important thing being fully present with who or what is right in front of them and moving so fast all the time, constantly pressured by deadlines and all the stuff that they need to be doing, eventually it would be harder and harder to be fully present anywhere and especially to connect with Almighty God. Lots of us struggle with moving too fast. I'm here, but I'm thinking about there. And then when I get there, I'm thinking about here again. No wonder I'm always tired, I'm always traveling. <laughs> There's a sense in which we can be moving faster and faster and faster, trying to accomplish more and more and more, and it results in actually 
a more shallow and less satisfying life. So in this moment, we live between the trees. And according to Scripture, we can have a living, breathing, dynamic, real connection with Almighty God. That's an invitation to us that we should pay attention to. Now, Jesus speaks of believing, becoming a believer and crossing over from death to life. You see that imagery, that phrase being used quite um, a lot of times in the New Testament. What's fascinating to me about this, Jesus never speaks about eternal life as something that happens someday. He refers to it as if it's something that happens now. See, lots of us, we have this sense that there's this life and then I'm going to die. And then eternal life kicks in. Something new, change of address, all very nice, okay? But if God always has been and always will be, and I'm living in relationship with God now, then I will be living in relationship with God forever. So the moment that I said yes to Jesus and became a follower of his, at that moment, I enter into eternal life that starts now. Starts now. It'll look a lot different up there than it does down here, but eternal life, the point is, has already begun. For us, death is like a speed bump that we fly right on by because our second life has already begun. We don't think about that that often. In 1 Peter chapter 1, look what he writes. He says, For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. So if you're a Christian, you've been redeemed and restored. You're going to live forever with God. Eternal life starts now. It just keeps getting better. That's good news. So we live between the trees. And I think, I am convinced, that this adversely affects the way that we think about miracles. Because lots of people, if I were to ask you, what's a miracle? You would say, well, a miracle is like an invasion. It's like an aberration. It's almost like the invasion of something otherworldly or supernatural. So they'd say that, for example, like a miraculous healing would be like God invading and doing something just unreal. But if wholeness and health is how things always were, and if wholeness and health and harmony is how things are always going to be, then maybe brokenness and disease only exist for this little blip of time. So maybe a miracle is really an invasion of how things really are. Maybe a miracle is an invasion of normal. What happens in this fallen earth is the freak of nature. Because we live in a brief segment of eternity when all is not how God intends it to be. And it will not be this way forever. Think about the, the way things always were prior to human beings choosing their own way at the very beginning. Things always were as God intended. They always were as God intended. Things were in submission, you might say, to the will of God. God desired it to be this way, therefore it was this way. That's just the way things were. So God creates this world, he creates a garden, he creates humans, because love spills out of God and spills all over his creation. But God understands the laws of love, that God has to allow his creation to choose, to be free to choose him or not choose him. Because outside of that, God's like a divine stalker, and he's not. <laughs> so the very nature of love is that you have to have the power to choose. As soon as someone begins forcing their will, love is out the window. It's gone. Freedom is deeply tied to love. 
So God creates his prize creation human. He says, I give you this garden. I give you this incredible place, this great setting, and I'm going to place all around you my very, very best for you to manage and cultivate. I'm placing it all around so you can partner with me in managing it. But you are free at any point to live however you want. You're free to do that if you want. You're free. So God has a will and God has a kingdom, but he allows those that he creates to exercise their own will. So God has a kingdom, yes, but he also gives you a kingdom as well. You have a kingdom. You probably didn't realize that. One writer defines a kingdom as a range of effective will. A range of effective, in other words, your kingdom extends as far as when you, as when you will something, it happens. Just because it's your will, it happens. Which for many of us is a depressingly small kingdom. <laughs> My dog doesn't even listen to me. I have a very, very small kingdom. But God's kingdom exists forever, both in the past and in the future. Everything is submitted to his rule and his reign. But for this brief period of time, all these other kingdoms exist. And so when God invades humanity, comes to earth, and Jesus is living among us, and he teaches us to pray, how does he pray? He says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will is done up there. Let's pray that on earth so it'll be, ha it'll be happening here. So we, as the disciples of Jesus, we work to restore his prized creation, namely us, knowing that at some point in time, God is going to bring his project to completion. Now, I want to show you something in a moment in, just, uh, in, in Acts chapter 3. The, the first Christians that uh, were in that environment were telling everyone, trying to communicate the story that Jesus died and then rose from the dead, and they're trying to explain the implications of that because they're huge. So death enters back in the garden, and apparently death leaves in the final scene, right? So even death is a momentary aberration for here between the trees. It's temporary. Death is temporary. Now, I find this to be interesting. It's in a garden where death enters, and then God, God's redemptive plan begins and culminates after Jesus gives his life and then is buried in a place called the garden tomb. I've been there. I'm going to take some of you guys there someday. This is where he rises from the dead. He defeats death in a garden as well, kind of coming full circle. So in Acts chapter 3, Peter's preaching, and he says this about Jesus in verse 21. He says, he must re remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. He'll restore everything. So when we see these two pictures that we've looked at from Genesis and then Revelation, they seem very, very similar. God's going to return, and God will restore everything. And it needs restoration. I think you'd agree with me on that. I had a conversation with a young woman a while back, and she told me about years of abuse and rape and wrongs inflicted upon her. I mean, it's tragically common in our day. This is not how it's supposed to be. It's just not. Beyond that, lots of us have, have had stretches of time where we've ministered to people in extreme poverty, extreme. Big families living in glorified huts, not knowing if there's going to be food for them that day. That is not how it's supposed to be. But here is the truth, friends. 
suffering and pain and death, which are horrible realities between the trees, they're temporary. They are temporary. It's not how it was, and it is not how it will be. Because this one man, Jesus, rising from the dead, somehow had cosmic implications. And everything that is broken and fractured here, God is going to put back together again. So these followers of Jesus understand that God here between the trees is in the business of just tapping people on the shoulder. Hello, I have something for you to do. There's something I want you to do. There's a way in which I want you to partner with me. So God is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Bible's clear about that. And God's looking for partners who will work with him to restore his primary treasure, which is people. There are people all around us that desperately need a touch from God to know that this life is not all there is. God is always, always tapping on people's shoulders to discover if that person will partner with him or if that person will stiff arm him and say things like, I'm too busy or that makes me uncomfortable or why should I care about them? But people matter, friends. They matter to God. So maybe you work in cubicle land and God taps you on the shoulder and said, there's some restoration work that needs to take place. So I'm going to give you eyes to see beyond what's normal, beyond what's natural, beyond the surface. You can be my hands extended into your world. Will you partner with me? Maybe you're a mom living in carpool world. And there's some people on your street, maybe people in your apartment complex. And there are lives around you that are broken and splintered and fractured all around you. And God wants to partner with you to bring his best into your world, to bring comfort and to bring healing. Re I believe real Christians are people that understand this and say, Lord, we're yours. We're yours. We'll roll up our sleeves. We'll partner with you. We'll be your hands and your feet in our world. You started it. <laughs> you started it and we understand you want to partner with us. We want we want to go hand in hand with you and we'll bring your best into our world with your power, by your ability, by your strength at work inside of us. Because there's need, nobody here would deny that. There's plenty of need. It wasn't always this way, it won't always be this way. But right now between the trees, it is this way. And I want to partner with God in the restoration process because after all, I myself am a restored creation. And so are you. Why would we ever withhold from anybody else when we've received so richly? God's he's looking for partners on day one. He's still looking for partners today. So what do you do when he taps you on the shoulder? That's really, that's really what matters. Let's pray about that, can we? Uh, Lord, we're grateful for the high call of God to actually partner with you in your restoration process. Lord, we see now this life is not the way it always was. It's not the way it's always going to be. But this realm right here is important. And you want to work in us and you want to work through us. So, Lord, first we thank you for the work that you've done in us.
to make us new, new creations, uh, restored by your power. And Lord, we just want to say we're available to you. We know there's hurting people all around us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be so aware that when you're tapping us on the shoulder, we don't brush it away like it's a bug. But Lord, we say, okay, Lord, what are you saying? What do you want? How can I partner with you today? Help, give me the eyes to see the people around me that need a touch from you. God, there was that day when you touched me and I'm forever grateful. So Lord, I want to be involved with you in whatever you want to do through me in the process of restoration. Thank you for this time and this realm, Lord. Help us to make the most of it as you empower us. In Jesus' name we pray.